did forget to mention earlier that in the fireside room after the service, we'll be enjoying refreshments and spending a little bit more time with Ken Thomas. Well, this is our last week with David. 22 weeks following David from shepherd boy uh, coming from Bethlehem to warrior of Judah, king of Israel, and forever marked by his infidelities. David's rise to the throne was meteoric, and along the way he became the champion of Israel. I think he became our champion too. But then in a moment of indiscretion, in a moment of lustful indulgence, in a moment that led to murder, all came crashing down for David, and our hero, the hero of the Samuels, is covered in shame. He's disgraced. He's a disappointment. He's a confusing mess. And so often I felt like, I don't know what to do with this David. I want to rescue him from his own sins, but that's not my place. Indeed, we did see that God restored David, but even still, things were never the same for him. So today, as we look at this last passage in our series on David, 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7, it's entitled David's Last Words, it's going to help us to remember the life of David, and we'll sort of survey some of the things that we've reviewed over the past 22 weeks. And then we'll also see here that, that David's soul longed for the future king, and so do ours. And so do ours. So like I said, verse 1 tells us that these are the last words of David. That doesn't mean that these are like his deathbed words, the very last words he utters. You actually have to go to 1 Kings chapter 2 for those. But 2 Samuel 23, these are the last words of David in a sort of a public or a prophetic sense. And I think the last words of the book of Ezekiel help to show us what these last words of David are about. Ezekiel 12, 13 reads, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So the passage we're looking at today functions in a very similar way. These words sum up David's life, his, his legacy. Like if you learn anything from David, it's this. It's these words. For David, the words of 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7 are the end of the matter. After this, all has been heard. Now, of course, these words do come at the end of David's life, and perhaps he delivers them in some public place in Jerusalem, and think of him about being about 70 years old at this point, delivering his last words. And there, there are some in this room that are in the range of about 70 years old, so as we listen to the words of this old king, I have placed them into three categories. Identity, prophecy, and destiny. All right, look at verse 1 again. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of, God, of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So before David gets to his message, like the meat of it, he wants us to remember who he is. Lowly man from Bethlehem. He's of little significance. He may have had some wealth, but he was 
effectively a nobody. And the only reason that we know Jesse's name is because David, his son, was king. That's the only reason we know about Jesse, because of David. And yet, right here at the end of his life, probably long after his father has passed, here's David, proud of his father Jesse, lowly though he may have been in the world's eyes. And from these obscure roots, David says that he was raised on high. See that again in verse 1. And, and indeed it is. It's true. Can, can anybody be raised higher than from going from a, a lowly shepherd boy all the way to Israel's king? I mean, you know a shepherd boy is almost of no account, like the lowest of the low in society, all the way up to the very pinnacle king of Israel. I remember what David said right before he was crowned king of Judah. He, he inquired of the Lord, it says in 2 Samuel 2.1, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities in Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And then as we saw, David went up to Judah, and Judah crowned him king first in the city of, of Hebron. And then seven years later, Israel kind of comes down to Hebron, and they, they king they, they crown David as king over all Israel. And then we read in 2 Samuel 5.10, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So, indeed, David's meteoric rise was because God was with him. It had nothing to do with David's own achievements. It's certainly not his righteousness and not his might. It was all because of God. It was because God raised David on high because God made David his anointed one. And as we see there in verse 1, David says he was the anointed one of the God of Jacob. I remember when that happened, the prophet Samuel goes down to Bethlehem and he sorts through the sons of Jesse. That was 1 Samuel 16. And as he goes through the sons of Jesse, one by one by one, there's one more that's not there. He has to go be fetched from the from the flock, and he's brought forward, and God says, this is the one, and Samuel pours the anointing oil on him. But it's all by God's directive. So though Samuel poured the oil, it was God who was anointing David to be king. Notice in how in verse 1, David calls Yahweh the God of Jacob. Why Jacob? There were three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does he name Jacob? with Yahweh. And I think it's because Jacob received a unique promise among those three patriarchs. God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. David, Jacob's descendant, God's anointed, he is a fulfillment of that prophecy made to Jacob. So however, how obvious it should be to us now that, that David is king, not because of his magnificence, not because he was somehow special, but because of God's eternal purposes. This was planned long before David ever came on the scene. The God of Jacob has anointed him, a shepherd boy now become king. And with his rise, David has become the sweet psalmist of Israel. I love this bit. He's the sweet psalmist of Israel. What a claim. 
And he's, he's essentially saying he's the focus of Israel's songs. He's, he's the hero of Israel's songs. Do you remember when Saul got really upset about this? In 1 Samuel 18, we read, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him, and he grew in jealousy after this. So yes, he was indeed the hero of Israel's songs. But even more, even more than this, he authored many of the Psalms, which we read today, which are still with us. And as the author, David is at the heart of so many of the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So from the the testimony of Scripture, we know that David is hearing a heavenly conversation, right? David is privy to this thing going on with God. The, The highest Lord, or God the Father, says to David's Lord, or God the Son, sit with me until I defeat all of your foes. That's a profound, profound statement. And David is privy to this divine conversation, and then he writes it down in a song or a psalm, Psalm 110, and he could never have known that that psalm, which he authored, is the most quoted Old Testament psalm, Old Testament passage in the New Testament. By the hand of David, he truly was the sweet psalmist of Israel. It was his identity. Now, we haven't finished with David's identity yet, Moving past verse 1, he's not only the king of Israel, he's counted among their prophets. Look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. So he's being crystal clear here. No, in certain terms, he's saying he is a prophet of Yahweh. And not only here, but earlier when he twice proclaimed that he's speaking oracles of God. We saw that in verse 1. Twice he says he proclaims oracles of God. So he's saying, I'm a prophet of Yahweh, which is an incredibly powerful identity, incredibly significant. And we know, even beyond David's own words, that David was a prophet because the New Testament attests to this. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, declares, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's Psalm 16. And Peter, on the other side of the cross, is saying that David was speaking of the resurrection of the Christ. It's amazing. In Psalm 16, David writes about the Holy One, an anointed one, whose flesh would not see corruption, whose soul would not be abandoned to Sheol after he dies. So not only is is David God's anointed, David is also prophet of God, and he is prophesying about a greater anointed one. He's the anointed one, but there's a greater anointed one coming, the Messiah. And according to Peter, David was able to say this because he was being carried along by the Spirit of God. That's 2 Peter 1.21. 1 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing that people were speaking authoritatively for God with the very words of God like David did. And as they did that, they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And did we not see this when David was anointed? That at that moment of anointing, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, 1 Samuel 16, 13. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And he was a prophet. The Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of prophecy. And that Spirit rested upon David. And from time to time, that Spirit would carry David along and David would prophesy. So, I don't think there's any doubt about it. David is a prophet of God. And I'm really laboring this point. Because there's a building happening in the text. It's building towards something. You might even think a prophecy. The fact that God raised David up. The fact that God had anointed him and made him a prophet. And now at the end of his life, the Spirit of God would deliver one last oracle through this king prophet. What mighty prophecy might he have for us? Starting in verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, dot, dot, dot. So first, there's continued building, right? He's the God of Israel, the, the covenant keeper, the unshakable refuge for his people. He, by David, has spoken. He's speaking, right? So he's, David is saying, this is who I am. This is who God is. He's about to speak, and like this wave is going to crash on you of prophecy now. And then the words that everything has been building to, when one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them. Dot, dot, dot. And you look at this at face value and you're like, what? It, it's a lot of build for something that doesn't sound really exciting. I mean, yes, when, when somebody rules in righteousness, when they rule in the fear of the Lord, it goes well for the people. But, you know, how is that a prophecy? That's... That's like a proverb. That's a good principle. That seems to be the implication of the law. Yes, we know that. Why all this prophetic building? Why at the very end of your life, David, is this the thing that you want to say? But though it is true, good leaders rule justly and in the fear of the Lord, and it's good for the people. That's true sort of across the board. There's more going on in those words, and of course you had to know that was the case. For that, we really need to look at the Hebrew. In the ESV, from which I read, David does not use the common word for, for men when we read, when one rules justly over men. The Hebrew word that David uses is Adam. Maybe your translation says mankind. Adam can be translated as man, but its truer meaning is mankind. So David is prophesying here. David is saying something amazing. 
He's saying, and what this passage is building towards is that there will be, there is a coming one who will rule justly over Adam, over humanity. And at this moment, by the Spirit of God, David has just been catapulted out of his own realm, out of his own time, into something far, far greater. He's ruled over Judah and Israel, but he's not even come close to ruling over mankind. And the most powerful of all human leaders has never been able to subdue rebellious Adam and form a kingdom over all the earth. But there is one coming, he says. David was prophesying that a ruler over the human race would arise. He would be a just ruler. And a thousand years later, give or take, this ruler came to Israel. So Jesus said to the Jews, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I, am al- for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So you see, Jesus is operating in the perfect fear of the Lord, perfect love between Father and Son. And he couldn't have been more right. He's prophesying right there in that passage. Jesus couldn't have been more right. He was lifted up. He was lifted up to that cross, a criminal's cross, as an enemy of the Roman state. And he was killed. But because his life so pleased the Father, he was raised up again from death to life, out of the grave to walk again. But he was lifted up still another time, 40 days later, when the Father called him up. And there he was seated at the right hand of the Father and given all rule, all dominion, all authority. And he says himself, as he, just before he ascends, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Earlier I asked, can a person be lifted any higher from shepherd boy to king of Israel? Yes. There is no higher than how high Christ has been raised to heaven's throne, throne of heaven and earth. It is where he sits today. The, the New Testament tells us again and again, this is where he sits today, which means that the prophecy of David is fulfilled. It's been realized. Jesus, the king, reigns. And as Paul declares in Ephesians 1.22, all things have been placed under the feet of Jesus. All things. Find something that's not there. You cannot. Because it is all under his feet. The king has come. And what is this prophesied kingdom of the king supposed to look like? That's verse 4. He dawns on them like the morning, like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. I love this passage. Jesus is the morning light that breaks the grip of night. So relates to our Sunday school class this morning. And notice too, he's the dawning light. Right? He's a light that's rising. He's not, you know, it's not nighttime. It's not 5 a.m. I think it's still dark. And then midday sun. That's not what's happening. He is the dawning light. 
And I think it's so important that we see that, that there's this increase that's happening because when we, like, like there's this swelling hope, this, this growing brilliance in Jesus' reign, and that's the prophetic anticipation. We see it again and again in Scripture, just one, Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. There's a continual increase that's happening with the kingdom of Christ. The king has come and the night is breaking and we must know that Christ has this dawning effect over the earth, this progressive increase. And I say we must know that because when we look around our world and we see nations at war and we hear of earthquakes and there are persecutions and the love of so many has gone cold and we then would say, how is Christ reigning today? Like even now, Even now, Israel could be invading Gaza. And blood could be being spilt at this very moment. And so we, we ask, how can Christ be reigning today? How can we be living in the kingdom of Christ? The writer of Hebrews anticipates that exact question. He writes in chapter 2, Now, in putting everything in subjection to Christ... The Father left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. So you look around the world and, and you do not see a world that appears to be subjected to Christ. Have faith, because it is increasingly coming under his reign Everything is already under Christ's control, and everything is being brought more and more into subjection to him. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, believe that in the same way that you believe that Christ is crowned today with glory and honor. Is he crowned today with glory and honor? Is he? He is. Therefore, in the same way, all things have been placed under his feet. All things. Verse 4 also says that Christ's reign is like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. It's been a dark, cold morning. Or it's been a dark, cold night, and morning comes, and there are no clouds, and you feel that sun. It's bright, it's clear, it warms you, right? It's satisfying. Jesus is this rising sun, and he scatters all of the clouds, and any, any who would look will see him clearly. Any who have eyes to see will see. So step into that light and feel that warmth. He thaws the cold and unfeeling heart, and he heats the lukewarm life, and your sleepy heart cannot help but, but beat a little faster in the light of his justice, in the light of his grace, in the light of his calling. He rises upon you. His rule is like the rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. We see in verse 4. When Jesus is on the throne, there is life in barren places. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When Jesus is on the throne, there is life where there was death. He is the living water that rains down from heaven. He is the river in the desert. He is the only satisfaction for our panting souls and how our souls pant for satisfaction. The spirit of the living God prophesies it. So we know that when it's spoken, it will happen. As surely as the sun rises, it will happen. Jesus is creating a new heavens and a new earth. Even now, the king draws heaven and earth together in him. And to show us that that prophetic word is permanently fixed in reality, that it is unshaking, David grounds it in a covenantal reality, in covenantal history. We see this in verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? David wants us to see that the existence of his kingdom, his historical kingdom, is proof that there is a greater kingdom destined. Like you demand a sign, look at the kingdom of David. It's proof that there's a greater kingdom coming. David says, does not my house stand so with God? So again, he's, he's reminding us that it's God who raised him from shepherd boy to king of Israel. The house of David, with all of its contradictions, stands because of the work of the Almighty. And God has done this because he made a, pro, a promise or a covenant, which he says in verse 5. Saw that covenant back in chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. Steve Covell preached that sermon. There in chapter 7, Yahweh promises, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David's house, his kingdom, exists in history because of God's work. Now speaking as an old man, David knows how profoundly true this is because he was a nobody. There's no reason to regard him, yet God made him king. And on the way, there were numerous assassination attempts, including from the king of that time, Saul. God protected him. Though there were civil wars and terrible rebellions, the kingdom was not divided and taken from him. Though David defiled that throne with his wickedness, and for his sins he did deserve to die, God did not revoke his promises. And he forgave David and he spared David. And so, in fact, it is in spite of David that God faithfully kept him king. It looked like everything should have fallen apart for David. But God calls David to prosper, which he says in verse 5. Did he not cause my ways to prosper? Yes, God did. God protected, God forgave, God restored, God made good on his promises, and we saw it happen again and again 
in the life of David. And seeing that in David, it reveals something about our destiny. Because he who began a good work in the life of David brought it to completion in the life of David. He who began a good work in your life, he will bring it to completion. It's why Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So it's not just true for David, it's not just true for you, but he who began a kingdom on this earth will bring that kingdom to its completion. And we know that because the keeping power of God is found in his everlasting covenant, and it's not found in our ability or our righteousness or David's. It's found in the righteousness and ability of Christ, the king. The king can do it. The king is doing it. And he is bringing a kingdom. And so if that's true, if the king has come, if his kingdom is dawning, then we must bow our knee to this king. We bow our knee because that kingdom, that kingdom is our destiny. We were made for it and it for us. God did not just dump David because of his sins, though he could have. Neither will God dump you because of your sins. This is the promise of the kingdom that was covenanted by the Father, that was brought to you by the Son, paid for with his own blood, and it is guaranteed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now you have been given in Christ an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you, so that no one can take it, nothing can tarnish it, but it is yours forevermore. The promise is yours through faith in King Jesus. And yet the promise comes with a dire warning, inevitably, unavoidably, that there is another destiny apart from King Jesus. And that's what David talks about in verses 6 and 7. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they, can, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the, the man who touches them arms himself with iron, the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So in verse 4, we saw that Christ will be like rain to make the grass. Many people are going, and now we hear a warning to the weeds. Many people are going to benefit from the rule of the king. Along with the grass, right, they receive nourishment and vitality from the rain, but they take that nourishment and they twist it. They become corrupted. They sprout thorns. They are the godless fools of Romans 1. These are the people who benefit from Christ's rule, yet they reject it or they call it evil. And we don't need to think very hard to see what that looks like because we look around our nation and we see it everywhere. A once green pasture has been overrun by weeds. And so we know, in part because of David's prophecy, that opposition to the king 
is worthless and it is hopeless. Because the day will come when the weeds will be torn out and thrown into the fire and utterly consumed. Jesus teaches on this in the parable of the wheat and the tares. To deny Jesus, to resist his kingdom is an exercise in futility. So there's an inescapable truth that we need to know there isn't any middle ground. There isn't any room for lukewarm, for fence-sitting. It's all in or all out. And it's so easy. It's so easy to drift into lukewarm. It feels comfortable, but just today, this is a warning. If you're sitting on the fence today, this is a warning to you. Get off. Enter the kingdom of God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Christ is your king. You cannot serve two masters. And, brothers and sisters, this must be a part of our gospel proclamation. We cannot give the good news without the warning, because without the warning, the good news isn't so good. We need not be ashamed of this warning. People need to know. We see also from this warning that your worth as a human being comes from who you worship. Right? If by faith we, worth, we worship Christ, then God reckons our lives worthy. Not because of us, but because we, we, we want to honor Christ. We want to magnify Christ. And so if we are that way, God deems our lives worthy. But if we worship our unworthy passions, our empty, degenerate passions that can do nothing for us, then we are the worthless weeds. And we will be cast forever into that fire to burn with our passions that will never save us. As Alistair Begg has said, in bowing to Jesus, our lives are filled with hope. Or in rejecting Jesus, our lives are ultimately worthless. So we can be assured of this prophetic word of David that, that God's covenant will not fail, that the promised king is true because David's historical kingdom was real. Indeed, all of David's life and in spite of David's life, he was a prefigurement of Christ. He, his, his life was a prophetic testimony of the coming Messiah. And which is why, I think, with his last words, he wants to one last time point to that future king. God used David's kingdom to lay a foundation. And God built that. God raised David up. God gave him that kingdom. And upon that foundation, Yahweh continues to build 
He continues to build something far greater, something everlasting, something that will bless every family on the earth. It's a kingdom ruled by the king who dawns like the morning sun upon the earth, who brings life where there was death. The promise that God made to Jacob, that God made to David, is forever filled in Jesus Christ, our king and our Lord. It is real. It is true. And David and his kingdom prove it to us. So the story of that kingdom is the story of the gospel. And it's the longing of every heart. As I had mentioned, you know, we're hearing news all the time spilling out of the Middle East and out of Eastern Europe. And I think it breaks our hearts, it breaks my heart. Those images are terrible. And we weep when we hear about Christians being persecuted and even killed in Nigeria and India and Iran and so many other places. And, and then there's dementia and there's cancer and there's injury. And we say farewell to those that we love. And sometimes we feel like we just cannot overcome our flesh. But in those moments, in every one of those moments, we need to look to our nail-scarred king who went from the lowest of places, that criminal's cross, to the crown of heaven and earth. And we see in him that he is crowned with glory and honor, that he is shining upon us like on a sunless or a cloudless morning. And we hope, we hope, May our hope be unshakable because Jesus reigns, because the work that he began, he will bring it to completion. It's already underway. Nothing in the world, in all creation, can stop this work that God is doing. No one can go outside at five in the morning and hold back the rising sun. No one can stop this kingdom from dawning upon us. Jesus is making all things new. He is putting chaos into order. He has already started, and it will not fail And so the answer to all of our deepest longings, our heart's desire, they are found right here in 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7, with the last words of David. And that's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Lord willing, we're going to begin next week a study in Matthew that might take us into the summer of 2025. So bring your seatbelts. That gospel begins like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Father, we thank you so much for your word, that you speak to us through it, that through this word spoken millennia ago, bursts hope today, bursts excitement, passion, joy for the things that you're doing in us and around us. And, and we can't help but worship you, God Almighty, who brings life where there was death, who takes the lowly and you, you make them lofty. Father, you are good. And we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.